Welcome to Fridays with Fintelect. My guest today is Peter Piatetsky, co-founder and CEO at Castellum.ai. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Shreesh. Very happy to be here. I, you've done a lot of great work and uh, very happy to be one of your guests. Thanks, Peter, for the kind words. Much appreciated. Peter, the mission statement for Castellum.ai is to organize the world's compliance data and make it universally accessible and useful. So at the outset, can you give our audience an overview of your career so far, which included working in the U.S. Treasury and being associated with the U.S. Army, and how it finally culminated in you co-founding Castellum.ai with this mission statement? Um, when I started working at the U.S. Treasury, I worked on Iran issues at, at OFAX, I wrote designation packages, and I moved into an intelligence office and worked on uh, Russia and Eastern European uh, money laundering. And my last job at Treasury was in the policy office, and I was senior policy advisor for Iran. And Iran is one of the most sanctioned countries in the world. And so I frequently had this issue come up where senior leadership would come and say, hey, Peter, we have you know, this foreign leader coming, write me a talking point about Iran sanctions. And talking point was generally, here are US sanctions. This is who we have on our list. These are your sanctions lists. And the talking point would say, you know, take someone from the US sanctions list and put them on your sanctions list. So it sounds like an extremely simple question. You, know, you compare, let's say the Japanese sanctions list and the US sanctions list, what's the Delta? And then, you know, whoever is not on the Japanese sanctions list, you say, please add this, these people. And what I found was that that was actually insanely difficult. And I, I had no idea that that was the case. But this is kind of the origin of Castellum.ai, which is being at Treasury, I couldn't find and didn't know who was on other sanctions lists. And it wasn't just J Japan. It was you know, Japan, South Africa. Germany, Peru, Mexico. I knew it was really a problem when nobody at Treasury could help me find the Canadian sanctions list. And you know, it's not because my colleagues weren't smart, they're all very smart. It's simply that governments all over the world do a terrible job of providing this data. So it, it's kind of a real problem for, for businesses and for compliance because governments say, you have to follow the sanctions if you don't follow the sanctions, we'll fine you. And then de facto, the most, it's extremely difficult to find this data and the best way to do it is to pay a compliance vendor. But you know, as anyone uh, has, has worked with a large compliance vendor, you have to you know, schedule a demo, listen to sales pitches, get custom pricing, it's very difficult. And our mission at Castellum.ai is to build basically the Google for compliance. So an online platform uh, which is extremely easy to access uh, at a very affordable price point so that anyone globally can can find data. And really, it's the best businesses are the ones that solve a problem that is real and that you've had, and this is solving that problem. So, Peter, what changes have you seen in the nature of sanctions being levied globally over the years? Is there a trend towards the use of sanctions, not just for diplomatic reasons, or to counter terrorism, but also for other issues such as corruption or human rights violations? Yeah, I think your, your question really lay, lays all of it out, right? Um, I, I'd say the biggest change that has happened in, in sanctions in, 
if you want to go way, way back, some people could say the first sanctions that happened in ancient Greece. And some will say, well, sanctions really started in during World War II uh, in, in the US and UK with various export controls. But uh, really, modern sanctions uh, started with 9-11. With and in, in the 1990s, you did have some uh, sanctions globally imposed by countries. And in the US, particularly, it's focused on Cuba, uh, Iraq, uh, and Yugoslavia. And so you had kind of in the 90s really broad sanctions that essentially said, you can't do business with country X, period. And there was a lot of criticism of these type of sanctions that they were punishing the innocent without actually affecting governments. And when 9-11 happened, the US government said, all right, we need every single tool available. And among others, Treasury came up with, with solutions. They said, look, we can, we can do impose sanctions. And so 9-11, uh, uh, September 11th, I think September 24th, there was an executive order uh, with kind of the first really or organized targeted sanctions program. So it was no longer, we're going to go after a country. It was, we're going to go after individuals. And the follow-on to that was how the U.S. Uh, pushed us internationally. So the U.S. worked at the United Nations to push through Resolution 1373, which is really kind of the, the mother of all global sanctions programs because U.N. Resolution 1373 required countries to follow U.N. sanctions and also push through sanctions on the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And so you kind of have 9-11, you have U.S. sanctions, you have U.S. pushing for sanctions at the U.N., and then you have the Financial Action Task Force, you know, your global standard setter, which basically goes around the world. And I, I was lucky enough to be an assessor uh, for FATF as well, goes around the world in checks and they grade every country. And they'll say, do you follow, do you impose UN sanctions or not? They ask hundreds of other questions, but that's one of them. And so countries slowly all over the world started building programs to follow sanctions because they wanted to get a good grade from FATF. So it's very much a long-term process, but you go from, we're going to go after a country to, okay, we're going to go after individuals. Uh, you have then in the 2010s and uh, with kind of significant pressure on Iran and, and Russia globally, sectoral sanctions. So you go from just a country to this terrorist to a sector. So automotive sector in Iran or deep water drilling in uh, in, in Russia. And that was a different type of sanctions. And now you have a, not necessarily a different type of sanctions, but the use of licenses a lot. So a government will, you know, impose potentially very broad sanctions. So it'll impose sanctions, not necessarily against a whole government, but we'll say this sector, that sector, these people, these government agencies, and people want to know, is there anything left I can, I can do? We're, kind of back to square one where governments are de facto sanctioning, you know, an entire region. And so there's a really prolific use of licenses and the licenses say you can provide software, educational software, you can provide educational materials, you can provide humanitarian needs. Uh, in some cases, there's even a uh, carve out to say a terrorist group might control this territory, but you can still work in that territory to provide aid. And specifically that's the case of Al-Shabaab. But you see the evolution of the tool. And then in terms of focus, like, like you said, 
uh, Tracy, went from a very political to kind of a more a counterterrorism focus. Uh, then there was a law enforcement focus added. So there's a lot of an, uh, anti-narco trafficking sanctions and cybercrime sanctions. And now fi finally, uh, again, we're kind of back to square one with the corruption and human rights sanctions. Uh, you could argue those are law enforcement. You could argue those are political, but that's the, the latest use of the tool. And just some, some quick numbers in terms of uh, Russia has the largest sanctions list globally about 12,000 names on it, a uh, U.S. is after, but in terms of focus, uh, you know, U.S. has 81 different lists. You know, they have like, uh, for Iran, they have 20 different lists, for North Korea, they have five or six, but that shows you the breadth of the U.S. focus. Uh, European Union has 31, and then the United Nations has 14. So even with the U.N., there's 14 different sanctions programs the whole world can agree on. Um, and then, you know, you have uh, China and in India that are recently joining the sanctions scene. Uh, China has less than 100 people. It's, it's named and it's a kind of very political program there. India's program is much more, we're going to use UN sanctions, but India designates uh, groups that are basically terrorist groups that operate within India. So to kind of wrap up the question, it's really modern sanctions begin with 9-11 with and we've seen it the tool expand in many different ways. Uh, and, and now it's something that's used, a tool that's used globally for pretty much every single reason. I've asked many of my guests earlier whether sanctions have been successful as a useful diplomatic tool and I get mixed reactions from them. So I'm gonna rephrase that question a bit for you. Uh, what would you say are the successes of global sanctions policies? Yeah. To, to use probably a bad allegory, but it's sanctions are a really powerful tool. They're like an F1 car. And depending on who the driver is, you're going to get different results. Um, so it, it's it's really kind of what what track are, are, are you at? Who's the driver? What's the team supporting it? Uh, it's people often like to say, well, sanctions either don't work or, or work, but it's it's a lot more complicated than that. And the most important goal is what does work mean? Uh, I mean, I'm not trying to not answer your question. I think the best way to answer your question is sanctions can be very successful if there's a specific goal. And that's rare. Uh, most often, kind of once countries have realized that sanctions are really effective, they started using them for everything. And oftentimes there's not a specific goal. And so the question is, are the sanctions treating the symptoms? Or are the sanctions treating the disease? And if your goal is to treat the symptoms, then, and you, you do that effectively, then that's great. And one of the best kind of effects of, of sanctions is in blunting terrorism finance. So this is a clear case of treating the symptoms. Sanctions are not going to de-radicalize people, uh, stop people from kind of joining terrorist groups. Uh, that's, not, that's not their goal and they're never gonna do that. But sanctions do make it much more difficult to finance terrorism. And sanctions have, have led to kind of following the money on terrorist networks, uh, to dismantling terrorist networks, to arrest of terrorist financiers, and also to kind of actually helping out the charity sector a lot, where previously there were a lot of charities that were either abused or sometimes complicit, and now there's a lot more clarity. So I think mean, that might be the, the best success of sanctions. 
in where they're treating the symptoms in terms of where sanctions there's been a clear diplomatic goal um i'd say internationally the the iran deal which was then dismantled by the trump administration is is the best example where the international community us russia uh, europe china, china set goals of we want iran to come to a deal uh years of negotiations which and escalating sanctions pressure so there was a very specific goal we want iran to stop its nuclear program and negotiations were done internationally and that goal was achieved uh it does show you the the problem that you have with sanctions as a tool which is there was a U.S. election and the U.S. president said, I don't like it and ruined the whole program. So, but in, in, in this case, they were unquestionably successful. I think the most successful case of, of sanctions uh, ever is actually by, by President Trump, where he used sanctions like no one else before. He was ready to use it for any purpose. And there was an American pastor who was imprisoned in Turkey and he said, you know, release this guy. I don't want him to be in jail. And Turkey said no. And so Trump sanctioned several Turkish ministers. And this guy was out of jail in, in, in like several days. And a lot of people didn't, including myself, thought this was not a great or even good use of sanctions to use it so specifically for one case. But it, it worked. Um, it was also probably the most narrow use of sanctions ever. Like the, go the goal of this entire sanctions program was to get one person out of jail. Having said that, nothing else the U.S. government did work. So to, to round back to your question, you know, sanctions really depend whether they work or not is going to depend on the goal uh, and whether you want to treat the symptoms or the disease and also how, how small or big the goal is. The bigger the goal, the harder it is to accomplish. And I think most of the time now, sanctions are imposed without any clear goals, which which makes it difficult for them to succeed. It has now been over a fortnight since the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. What measures uh, should the international community be thinking about next to influence the Taliban's policies? Yeah, I, I think it's a very simple answer, which is wait and see. And... I, I know, I know, I know you want more, uh, but I think it comes down to nobody wants to see Afghan civilians uh, are hurt any more than they already have have been, and no one wants to see mass starvation. At the same time, if the Taliban start executing people in in stadiums, publicly torturing people, and kind of you know continuing the type of behavior that they had when they were in, in power nobody's going to want to support them either. And they've said that they're going to be moderate. We really haven't had enough time to to tell. And also, I, we don't know what, what that means. Like somebody can say that they're, they're moderate. Um, and, you know, for ISIS, that might have meant that we're not going to throw people off of buildings or burn them alive. We're, we're just going to uh, execute them in public. So we really need to see what moderation means. And... But, but I think every, every everyone in the private sector right now, if they haven't already, should immediately stop all, all business with, with Afghanistan, period, because the Taliban remain sanctioned internationally and domestically by most countries. They, we, we don't know what they're going to do, and it is definitely a violation of, of sanctions. Now, 
whether governments are going to crack down on people that are are kind of working uh, in Afghanistan is is a very different story. And so you have, for example, international money remitters like MoneyGram, Western Union, and RIA, and others who have reached out to governments, including the U.S., and said, "Hey, what what can we do?" Because they are one of the biggest sources of financial inflows to Afghanistan, which is Afghans outside the country sending money back. And governments have initially told them to wait and then said, okay, look, you can start again, uh, but we might tell you to stop. So there's uh, private sector and charity should definitely be in close communication, but the, the sh you know, this is something where there's no clarity because I think the Taliban themselves aren't sure what they're going to do. And so we're waiting to see international communities waiting to see what they're going to do. Um, but, you know, one, one thing is, is for certain is that, uh, you know, they're, they're likely going to be receiving some aid uh, from Pakistan. They receive military and financial and material from Pakistan throughout the entire war. And the question will, will not be a big one. Is Pakistan going to support uh, the civilian community there or was it just going to support support the war? Peter, you released a very interesting report in June uh, of this year uh, when sanctions violate human rights. Uh, this was done with the Atlantic Council. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, can you speak about that report and its key takeaways? Yeah, and thank you for, for going through that. So it was, the, the quick takeaways on, on that report are that sanctions and unilateral sanctions don't necessarily violate human rights. It's when sanctions are imposed arbitrarily. And we did not try to reinvent the wheel and say, well, this is what human rights are. This is what a violation of human rights is. We very simply went to UN Charter of Human Rights and looked there kind of what is considered a violation of human rights. And for sanctions, there's a very clear uh, connection, which is when people are arbitrarily deprived of their property. So that's what sanctions do. Sanctions deprive you of your property, whether it's your money, or your, uh, you know, your, your vehicles or your, your home, that's what sanctions do. And so the, the, what we really focused in was the word arbitrary. And because again, governments are allowed to do that. The UN encourages even you know, people to be deprived of their property if it's for reasons of let's say crime or terrorism. And so we, we did a global survey of sanctions programs and we looked to see which ones provided the most public information, which ones ex explained the most. And we, Agastella and me, we always do our, our, our best to let the data tell the story and come to data-driven conclusions. So we try to make sure that whatever opinions we have are not, are not factored in. And you know, in, in kind of looking at that, we found that uh, Russia, Pakistan, and Turkey have uh, very large programs, and also they provide the, not a lot of information for why people are listed, and the programs are pretty arbitrary. And, and one thing that's interesting as we found for Russia is uh, Russia lists uh, a very large amount of religious groups on its uh, terrorism watch lists, and even uh, Russian President Putin at one point he was asked during a press conference and why are there over 400 sanctions on Jehovah's Witnesses? And he said that this is really weird. Uh, I don't think they should be on there, but they're, they're still on there. So I, you, you have cases that are, that are arbitrary, 
where there's no explanation for why someone is is a terrorist and what we see as uh, and, and that's another thing which is so we looked at UN rules for human rights and then we looked at FATF rules for imposing sanctions again we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here uh, UN and FATF set the standards and we're trying to see what data follows them and in FATF's guidance they kind of really really hammer that sanctions should be targeted at, at crime and terrorism. Uh, now, FATF gives broad leeway to people to define crime and terrorism. Uh, what FATF, we think, doesn't do enough of is to focus on in ensuring that there's basically public explanations to prevent arbitrary sanctions. Right now, FATF will come into a country and say, do you follow US sanctions or UN sanctions, yes or no? You know, do you have an avenue for delisting? Uh, it's definitely a bit of a checkmark process. It is extremely important, but I think it's time for FATF to move into the next phase, which is to look at, are, are, your, are your sanctions fair? Are you actually targeting people that are, that are involved in financial crime, or is it more political? But the, the big takeaways from the report are sanctions definitely violate human rights, but whether they do so depends on whether they're arbitrary. And if governments explain why, and just because sanctions are unilateral doesn't make them violations of human rights. You know, what are your views on the US-China sanctions conflict, if I may call it that, you know, which seems to be intensifying rapidly? Are there solutions likely through dialogue or has that ship already sailed? I, I think the ship is actually still in port. Uh, I think over the summer, we saw the, the ship getting loaded with cargo, uh, the sails being un unfurled, the crew being uh, you know, packing their bags, it was definitely ready to, to escalate. And the biggest part of that is the anti-foreign sanctions law. And China passed the anti-foreign sanctions law in and applied it to China. Uh, and then China was going to have the same law passed in Hong Kong. And China has complete control over Hong Kong. So it was, if Beijing wanted it done, it would have been done. And it was literally, I think, it was, it was scheduled for a reading uh, in the Hong Kong legislature and it was going to be passed and then it, it, it didn't. And it, you know, it would have been very interesting to be a fly on the wall in, in Beijing to see why they, they made that decision. But that would have been, probably, I think without kind of any exaggeration, catastrophic for the business community in Hong Kong because what that law effectively says is you have to choose between the West, you know, US and Europe or uh, or China for businesses. And most of the businesses in Hong Kong are so successful because they are a bridge between the West and, and China. So forcing kind of the bridge to, to choose, you're, you split it in half and every, everybody loses. Now, I, I mean, don't other cases where there's significant sanctions on such a large and important player is US and European Union sanctions on Russia. Uh, I, ironically, I think the West and Russia have an advantage is because of the Cold War, where they know how to dislike each other for a very long time without escalating into a you know, serious conflict. And with China, the, the West and does not have that experience and China doesn't have that experience with the West. So it's it's unclear where this conflict is going to go. There really hasn't been a Cold War in modern times between uh, China and, and the West, but I, 
I think there's kind of what, what's, what was different here is that China is definitely rising. And China is not interested in being told what, what, what to do. Um, doesn't is not interested in being told that that it's bad. Doesn't matter if it's right or not. They they don't want to hear it. And uh, the question is, to what extent are they willing to make that goal of of kind of be being a top dog more important than their economic interests? Because their economic interests are to just complain about sanctions and Western sanctions and ignore it and keep going, but. There's a very powerful faction of Beijing which doesn't sees this as losing face and does not want to lose face. So, I think right to kind of go back to your question, the ship is still in port, but it's it's ready to sail at, at any moment, and e, we could really kind of any any provocation from from either side or anything seen as a provocation could lead to kind of a, a, a quick economic escalation where businesses are suddenly either in violation of Chinese law or in violation of U.S. law. And the question is then going to be, are U.S. regulators going to enforce? Are Chinese regulators going to enforce? And if they if they do, that's bad for business. If they don't, they're seen as weak. So it, it becomes a, a situation that spirals out of control quickly. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. It was fantastic speaking with you. Thank you for, for having me and uh, look, look forward to seeing this.